Hello, I'm Carl Oakes, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Way of the Higher Self. This is a spiritual path of self-transformation with an emphasis on specific evolutionary practices. It's suitable for people in the early stages of personal growth, as well as for those who've been working their path for a long time. And I want to emphasize that wherever you are on your journey, I honor the work you've done to get there, and I'm grateful for your willingness to consider what's offered here. So, from that place of respect and appreciation, I'd like to ask you the following questions. Do you want to be more grounded, more loving, and more effective in pursuing your goals? Would you like to be freely and fully yourself, justifiably trusting that your words and actions will always be constructive? Would you welcome a relaxed and yet passionate life with real and rewarding relationships, uninhibited creativity, and commitment to a spiritual life task? From my own experience, I know that if you're willing to work this path persistently, it will give you all of that. If you'd like to join me for this and other episodes, I'll show you how. Hi, I'm Carl. I'm really glad you're here. Let's get started. This is the first part of the introduction to the fourth practice of the Way of the Higher Self, understand our life circumstances as spiritual effects. So I'm going to start my explanation of this with the spiritual premise that underlies it. And by spiritual, I mean that it has to do with explaining the, the core workings of all of reality on a very, very fundamental level. And at the same time, it's not scientifically provable. It's just something that we kind of may come to accept because uh, when we view reality through the lens of this premise, things start to make sense and we start being able to kind of accomplish things with that perspective that we're not um, as capable of accomplishing with a materialistic perspective. Okay, that's how we validate the truthfulness of this, if we do. Um, so I'm going to explain the premise, and then um, I'm going to give you, if you're not that comfortable with viewing it, you know, that way, and you want something that feels a little more concrete to you, um, a couple of options for how you can uh, walk it back a little bit to something, you know, uh, less spiritual and still uh, feel comfortable doing the practices that I'm going to show you. So the premise basically is that the universe responds to our beliefs and our attitudes and our thoughts and our feelings as well as to the subtle choices that we make uh, based on our beliefs, attitudes, thoughts, and feelings and kind of that our experiences in life are therefore reflective of these inner states that the universe or, or what happens around us, our life circumstances, is essentially a mirror. And we can take it one step further, and we can say that this kind of law of cause and effect, all right, what's internal produces effects that I can see in my life, 
or this law of karma, if you want, um, that this is a benevolent mechanism, that it exists basically in order that we may um, learn about ourselves by taking a look at what messages our life circumstances are giving us. All right. So that's the spiritual premise. Um, we can walk that back a little bit. We can say, well, um, the universe isn't really responding to our beliefs, attitudes, thoughts, and feelings so much as it is to the choices that we make um, because we have these belief, attitudes, thoughts, and feelings. So if I have a, a, a belief that uh, everybody's untrustworthy and an, an a negative attitude towards other people, um, you know, I may find myself isolated and, and uh, you know, uh, without any friends. That, that's not because of these inner states, but it's because of the way I choose to act with people that, that I'm getting that feedback. And that's fine if you want to look at it as being purely about the choices. And then um, you could either walk it back a step further and say, um, I, I'm not sure I buy any of this, but, you know, let's try the practice and let's see if anything happens uh, on that basis. In other words, basically, you could proceed as though there were some kind of, of truth in this, um, just as kind of like an experiment to, to, to find out what happens. So, um, in the second part of this, I'm going to give you some actual techniques, you know, and kind of like a, a little bit of a checklist, kind of like I did in the third practice, so that you can take an event um, and you can unpack it and look at it as a message. And, and by doing that, you can find out some things about yourself and about how you're creating your own experience. Um, before I do that, I want to kind of just illustrate um, a really powerful, with a really powerful example, how much uh, information there is um, in our experience if we look at things that way, this way. So um, I'm going to read to you um, an excerpt from uh, a book I was working on a while ago, and it talks about a particular. Um, really difficult and unpleasant experience in my life. And the work that I ended up doing, um, maybe not as, well, definitely not as systematically as what I'm going to show you. It, it, was, uh, it was a little more kind of haphazard. But the, the, the decoding that I did after the fact to, to extract meaning from it. Um, and I want to I just address two things ahead of time. First of all, this talks about a, a nonprofit organization that I was involved in. And you may conclude that it was really uh, poorly run. And um, that's true. And there's some story that explains why it all happened the way that it did, that some part of me really wants to tell you uh, to make it more even like believable. Um, but I feel like it's really important to do everything that I can to uh, maintain anonymity, to, to kind of keep it as vague as possible as to when and where this happened. Um, so I'm going to leave that hanging. So if, if throughout it you're thinking, what in the world was going on here? It would be less 
it would be a little less crazy if you knew more about it, but, I, but I'm choosing to kind of withhold that information. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I'm aware that I don't come off well in this story. Um, and, and I'm choosing to tell you the story anyway um, to kind of walk my talk about something I said in an earlier episode, which is that if you really want to do this work, you have to let go of uh, your pride and vanity. We have to let go of our pride and our vanity if we want to do this work. That attachment, that need to kind of, that ego need to make ourselves uh, look better than we are or to look perfect or to look like we never mess things up is just a total dead weight on the whole process. Um, so I, I'm going to go ahead and read this to you even though in a couple of places you may cringe a little bit and I cringe a little bit, but you know, I, I'm also beyond these aspects of myself now and that's the whole point, all right? If we really are uh, willing to delve into our stuff, it transforms. The lower self energy becomes higher self energy and then you know, we're free of these things and we become happier. So, all right, so here we go. Um, a while back when I was feeling blocked and stagnant, I prayed intensely and sincerely to be shown the most important thing or things I needed to see about myself, promising that I would face any difficult circumstances with an appropriately tolerant and inquisitive attitude. This kind of flashes ahead to the seventh practice, by the way, um, and it's part of what I'm illustrating here is that prayer can be used, you know, uh, not to necessarily get vehicles in your driveway, but to um, accelerate and support the process of, of personal and spiritual growth. Not long thereafter, but long enough to have forgotten about the prayer, I found myself involved in a leadership capacity in a local nonprofit organization. One of the people I was working with was the wife of a friend of mine who I will refer to as Sue. Sue had taken on enormous responsibilities in the organization, but it seemed to me that some of them were outside her area of expertise, that she was overextended in the rest of her life, and that she was overly invested in having a conspicuously important role in the organization. Over time, I got the impression that Sue's attachment to control was driving away people who knew more than she did and that her general irritability and tendency to take things personally was having a negative effect on morale. I also got feedback that people were waiting to see whether I was going to do anything about the situation. I took steps to try to carve up Sue's job description, leaving her with the things she was really good at and shifting away responsibility for areas it seemed clear to me she couldn't handle. She got irritated with me, and I eventually lost my patience and curtly told her that I needed a few days to take care of my paying job, and then I would get back to her with a restructuring plan. In the days which followed, Sue erupted against me publicly on email, accusing me of a whole litany of conspiratorial efforts to undermine her and take credit for her achievements, going back many months. All of these accusations involved at least some measure of projection and or misunderstanding. Some of them were completely ludicrous. 
I tried to keep response to a minimum, but I did indicate that I thought things were veering into drama and that we ought to just discuss the nuts and bolts of the situation at the next steering committee meeting. My response elicited an even more distorted offering from a colleague who had similarly been construing things involving me in a sinister light and who had, evented, who had evidently been sharing interpretations with Sue. In their stories about me, when I had expressed a preference for bringing the colleague with me to a radio interview instead of Sue, I had been using the colleague as a pawn to undermine Sue. The truth of the matter was far less Byzantine. It was a half-hour interview, and Sue had a tendency to go on and on for lengthy intervals, whereas the colleague was succinct and spoke more from the heart and would have made a much better partner for that particular event. All of the other accusations leveled at me had similar, relatively mundane explanations, which could easily have been elicited in a normal clearing of the air between mature adults. But here we were instead with rather extreme things being stated or suggested about me on an email list which included people who weren't even active in the organization anymore. In any event, when the steering committee meeting happened, it became clear to me that Sue had been on the phone with almost every single person in the room, pleading her case and rallying them to her side. And it was clear to me that, there were, that they were more than willing to throw me under the proverbial bus for the sake of peace and quiet. I was stunned. I had been going along on the assumption that no one could be taking these rants of hers seriously, and that at the very least they would want to hear my perspective and think about the actual functional issues involved so we wouldn't lose more personnel and so that certain neglected tasks would actually get done. As it became clear to me that the fix was in, I detached from the situation and the following morning I resigned. All of this was quite painful to me. It pushed all sorts of buttons about being unjustly accused, being misunderstood, not being heard, not being respected, being ostracized, etc., all going back to highly unpleasant childhood experiences. I was hurt, and then on top of that I was enraged. For weeks I ranted internally throughout the day, wasting energy on imaginary verbal retaliation, which never resolved or clarified anything. Eventually, though, it occurred to me that I was giving a lot of energy to a story of victimhood, and I made the effort to detach myself a bit, at which point it finally dawned on me that all of this had been the answer to my prayer. All I had to do in order to extract some meaning from the situation and to feel better about it was to take my appropriate share of responsibility for creating the situation. By that, I don't mean that I let anyone else off the hook for his or her own choices. Rather, I mean that I took responsibility for doing this particular dance with these people, which could have gone down other paths had I not been unconsciously willing to let it play out exactly as it did. For starters, I had been subtly submissive towards Sue every single time that she had behaved in ways which I had found inappropriate. If you've heard other episodes um, you know, er, of, on earlier practices, um, when I was doing my fault list, for example, you're aware that this is you know, a tendency that I, I have been prone to and that has been um, difficult for me. 
I had not called her on her aggressiveness and irritability or on her tendency to hog the airwaves in meetings. I had not informed other members of the steering committee that she wasn't doing important aspects of her job. I'd been indirect about the fact that I really wanted her to give up the responsibilities she couldn't handle. And then I had just suddenly stopped hiding my negative assessment of her when I announced that I would be restructuring her job. That kind of submissiveness followed by rebellious hostility when I got fed up with going along had been a lifelong problem for me. I had already made excuse in this situation that she was a friend's wife and that I didn't really want to cause problems with my relationship with him. But ultimately, that didn't really fly. I could have approached him and told him that I was having difficulty and that I was anticipating conflict with her, but I chose not to because I was following an ingrained pattern of mine in which I end up as the noble innocent who has been treated unfairly. Pointing me towards accepting my own authorship of this experience was the fact that thematically similar things had happened to me before. This is really important. When things happen a lot in our lives, we are the common denominator. For instance, as a child of six or seven, I had been in a large group of boys who lived in a housing project not far from me and who were throwing rocks at each other, not my idea, when suddenly one of the boys' foreheads erupted in blood. There was a brief shocked silence, and then one boy pointed at me, the outsider, and said, Carl threw it. Within seconds, this became the consensus of the entire group, although I'm certain that no one knew for sure who had thrown that particular rock. And even though I had no reason to think that I had thrown the rock, and I also understood that we were all responsible for being involved in this stupid activity in the first place, I didn't put up much of a fight against this accusation, even when we all went to the boy's house to inform his mother that he was hurt. She was wonderful about it. Many years later, as an adult, I had been in a class in which a woman had taken an intense immediate dislike to me for reasons like Sue's substantially related to her own stuff and had campaigned against me to everyone who would listen. I had similarly let myself get intimidated, and things had similarly spun out of control in ways that were detrimental to me. In that case, what my excuse was that the class was almost all female, and that I was bound to be painted as some sort of abuser if I confronted her, especially since she was already playing the victim. As persuasive as that excuse felt to me, though, it's still a fact that I could have found a way around that problem if, unconsciously, I hadn't been predisposed to see myself as trapped. In fact, the parallels in the second situation didn't end there. I eventually left the class and then dumped my anger on an email list, somehow expecting that people would understand and acknowledge how unfair everything had been. Instead, a number of people came to resent me deeply for my outbursts and to shun me. I'd been shocked by this reaction, which I experienced as betrayal. But in the situation with Sue, as I found myself loathing the two individuals who had published distorted emails about me, I began to understand the impact of this type of written verbal attack. It's one thing to have someone say something about you when there's an appropriate opportunity to respond. 
It's another thing when people are, well, I'm sorry, it's another thing when things are said on email and a thorough response isn't really viable as one, the other person, uh, the other people receiving the message haven't consented to being dragged into a whole interpersonal thing. And two, email's a notoriously bad medium for resolving anything interpersonal in the first place. Not being able to imagine a way out of that dilemma, I felt more or less forced to take it which was frustrating and humiliating. Consequently, my attitude towards Sue and her colleague got very dark indeed. And that helped me to understand why people might have shunned me after my email tirades. And these two pieces, the submissiveness and the angry blaming and attacking, were actually two sides of the very same coin. At first there was the tendency to appease and accommodate, and then after that failed miserably as a tactic, anger at the situation I had found myself in, followed by destructive acting out. In big ways and small, this had been happening throughout my entire life. I was already aware of this tendency, but somehow this whole episode with Sue was so vivid, and I was so ready to approach it with ownership instead of blame, that I came to a place of real repentance. All right, so what do I mean by repentance there? That's a loaded word. It, I mean true recognition that an attitude, thought, or action is both contrary to spiritual law and harmful to the self, coupled with a willingness to let one's attitude to that attachment, thought, or action die. Um, you know, long story short, um, just a willingness to let go uh, of, a, of, of this attitude because I understand that it's destructive. Um, that's what I'm talking about when I say repentance. An important point about this new willingness to take ownership is that in my previous examination of similar events, I'd been hung up on my shame at being aggressive, whereas this time I was focusing much more on the submission which had set up the anger in the first place. I felt the unhealthiness of it and my attitude towards it completely turned. I knew I didn't want to do that anymore. And the way I've handled situations in which clarity about boundaries or negotiations is required has been markedly different ever since to my benefit and I would say to the benefit of others involved. Now, if you uh, heard my episode where I talked about the door being off center on the renovation and how the first thing I did when I started to talk about it to the builders uh, was to say, well, I'm hypersensitive to asymmetry, um, which is kind of making me, you know, uh, weird in that situation and devaluing my objection. I'm not 100% there, but it's still the case that, um, you know, that's gone from being a very important aspect of how I deal with things to being a very occasional slight aspect, which I notice immediately and, and take corrective measures about immediately. Um, all right. To, to my surprise, even that wasn't the end of what there was to learn from this experience. I knew this because in spite of all the insights and growths I've mentioned, growth I've mentioned so far, I was still prone to occasional fits of internal rage about the whole thing. It's a basic principle of the path work, 
which I do my best to live by. Um, the Pathwork is a spiritual body of knowledge that I mentioned on the website and I've mentioned uh, a bit, I, I think, on some episodes, but it's, um, it's the foundation of most of what I teach here. That the way to complete peace of mind about a situation is complete understanding of all the karmic links. Thus, as long as we're still agitated about something, we haven't made all the connections the universe is offering us. After getting nowhere with it for a while, I resolved to be open to whatever it was I was being shown about myself that I was resistant to confronting. So, what else was there to learn from this experience? Well, then it came to me. At the age of 15, I had got caught, I had gotten caught smoking pot under the bleachers of my high school football field. The Dean of Student Affairs had come out of the building and headed in our direction, meaning that someone had tipped him off. I spent some time after being suspended trying to remember the students who had walked by us close enough to see what we were doing. There hadn't been very many. For some unconscious reason, which may have been related to, to the fact that he was as anxiety-ridden as I was, and I therefore felt uncomfortable around him, I settled on a kid named Clark. And then I mentioned my suspicions to his friends. This led, in short order, to the kid being routinely taunted as Clark the Narc, and something I was aware of, but didn't really, I'm sorry, this was something I was aware of, but didn't really concern myself with. It was pretty obvious, looking back, that I didn't actually know whether he had been the informant, and that his life could have been rendered pretty miserable by constant harassment and shunning. Honestly, though, I didn't even give that a thought. If you're thinking, what a creep, all I can say is, I know. This was pretty horrible behavior on my part. As someone who is generally pretty principled, it's hard to look back on that and recognize myself in it. I was just disconnected from any kind of normal reaction of compassion or desire to do the right thing. The best answer I can come up with is that I was 15 and doing drugs and my psyche was a little fragmented, but that doesn't excuse it or make me less ultimately responsible. As it happens, I had some connection with Clark many years later, and he told me that being thought of as a narc had completely ruined his senior year. I sincerely apologized to him and explained everything I've explained here. I didn't ask him to forgive me or suggest that my acknowledgement made things okay between us. I knew I had put him through a lot of pain for no good reason whatsoever. It's a hard thing to make peace with. It brings to mind the phrase, the banality of evil. It wasn't anything deeply sinister. I was just too lazy and self-absorbed to care. Making this thematic connection changed my feelings about the situation with Sue profoundly. First of all, she wasn't morally any worse than I had been. 
for reasons it's not appropriate to go into here, having to do with her own lifelong issues, she probably had as little of a real sense of how horrible she was being as I had had back in high school. And if I was going to condemn her, throw her into the figurative lake of fire, how could I justify not treating myself with the same lack of compassion? I couldn't. I had to choose. Either hate us both or see us both as flawed human beings acting without a true appreciation for the consequences of their actions. In other words, as Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. By the way, and this is important in terms of the workings of karma, I had not really reached a place of repentance with respect to this willingness to accuse and condemn others, whether outright or simply in my own mind. For instance, I'd been involved in another nonprofit not that many years ago in which there were two factions. I was the chairman of the board and it was important for me to be neutral and to try to bring people together. Instead, I let myself be worked on by a manipulative gossiper much like Sue who keenly detected my points of friction with key members of the other faction and then accentuated the differences until I gradually came over to supporting him about something in which he really didn't have the moral high ground. I rationalized it to myself by taking into account all of his useful skills and contributions to the organization, but I was being blind to the fact that others were never going to be able to accept certain things that he had done. Eventually, rather than averting an internal civil war, I helped provoke one by losing my credibility as an honest broker and sending a message that I didn't take the other side's concerns seriously. In short, I had let myself be played in exactly the same way that Sue had played the members of the steering committee. And on reflection about this episode, I saw that once again, I was up against the choice of hate everyone, myself and all the people who had let themselves be manipulated by Sue, or have compassion for everyone. I should mention that one thing which had made it easy for this individual to play me in the previous situation is that I'm quick to make harsh judgments about people. In that sense, I have an attitude problem. It's something I'm working on, trying to understand my points of attachment to being this way. What do I think I get out of this? What would I supposedly lose by being more tolerant and compassionate? These are questions for my ongoing work. And by the way, since I wrote this, which was, I don't know, years ago, a few years ago, three, four, five, I'm not sure. Um, I, I have made pre progress on that. I am gradually becoming less harshly judgmental. So, it's not as though my experience with Sue and her sinister accusations against me is punishment for what I did to Mark in high school. And, you know, I'm addressing here one view of karma, that it's punishment. Rather, it's medicine for the ongoing tendency I have to judge others unfairly and unkindly. Now, again, if you're not spiritually oriented, you know, sift that out, but you can still see where knowing this stuff about yourself can be useful. In any event, as though all of that were not enough, 
I also unearthed another important connection between the episode with Sue and my own behaviors. Sue was an echo of ways I had barged into situations in the past, acting as though I knew better than everyone around me. It had earned me the dislike of colleagues in an early teaching job, and I think nearly gotten me fired from my legal writing job, which ended up being the foundation of my career. Just like Sue, I had had an inflated sense of my own importance, knowledge, and skills, and had behaved as though it were understood that everyone in the organization should defer to me, or at least be really impressed by what I had to say. I'm better about that than I used to be, but it's still a piece of ongoing work. I, I am better about that. Um, and I guess it's still a piece of ongoing work. Yeah, but yeah, I'm better now than I was when I wrote this, let's put it that way. Finally, there was also the fact that I've worked alone for over 30 years and considered that to be one of the great blessings of my life. I'm good at setting goals and accomplishing them while balancing work with leisure. I'm not that temperamentally disposed to collaborating and looking back, probably would have been much happier not having a formal steering committee with whom I was expected to meet on a regular basis. A less formal network of people with whom I consulted organically about particular matters would have worked better for me. And this goes back to kind of the chaotic, unique circumstances of how this organization was formed and came together, which, which I said I wasn't gonna say much about. I don't see any of that in itself, um, these yeah, my preference for working alone, basically, as something which needs to change. But I do see that I wasn't honest with myself or others about the fact that I'm wired that way. I tried to accommodate to the situation, but I must have been giving off a subtle vibration that I wasn't really enthusiastic about a lot of our group conversations. And that must have come back to me in the willingness of committee members to treat me unfairly and put me in a position where it made the best sense for me to resign. There's a learning piece for me there about being true to who I really am and not putting myself in situations which don't really suit me. There may be additional things for me to learn as well. Once I had unpacked all of that, and it was a lot, I finally felt myself at peace. I wasn't a victim of something which shouldn't have happened. I was a participant in a painful experience, which I had actively asked for, right, in that prayer, and which was absolutely jam-packed with useful information for me. Yes, there had been humiliation. I could resist that pain and mentally punish the people at whose hands I had suffered it, or I could appreciate myself for this willingness to invite a difficult teaching and to follow through with it until it transformed me. It took me several months to get there, but I firmly committed myself to the latter path. If you think about it then, this terribly unpleasant experience was an absolute goldmine for me in terms of personal and spiritual growth. Just the decisive shift from submissive appeasement to responsible boundary setting alone was life-changing, not only in terms of the experiences I tend to create for myself, but also in terms of self-esteem. And then there was the variety of other insights on top of that. What a tremendous gift. And that's really what I 
um, that's the note I want to end on. Um, sure, this kind of work can be embarrassing. It can bring up, can force, uh, well, nothing can force us, but it can um, encourage us to look at things about ourselves that are going to be very painful to see, that are going to uh, not support our our ego um, what, what our ego would like to believe about ourselves. But there's such a benefit to going through that process. Um, first of all, just by adopting this perspective, I'm going to look at this painful experience, I'm going to unpack it in order to understand it. That in and of itself is a kind of perspective shift or paradigm shift from I'm a victim of this terrible thing that happened to I am willing to be a learner and let this experience inform me and transform me. And just that attitude change is, is tremendously uh, nourishing uh, personally and spiritually. Um, and then uh, the other cool thing, and I can't prove this, but you'll experience it if you do this, is that once you approach something this way, and you really pick it apart and learn from it everything you're meant to, um, the same kind of experience stops repeating. doesn't happen anymore because, I would say, because, the, because karma is a benevolent teaching mechanism, and once you've learned the lesson, it's not going to keep beating you, you know, in order to get your attention because you have paid that attention and you've done your homework. Um, whether or not you see it that way, you will notice. Once you get it, um, it stops happening. Um, and that's, that's so wonderful. And that's what I was referring to uh, when it, during an episode about practice three, I was saying that, you know, we're going to end up with a lot more control over our lives. Yeah, we can't change the fact that something like this did happen, but we can make it so it doesn't happen again, and um, that's pretty wonderful. So um, that's it for now. I'm going to do another episode in which I um, lay out kind of a tool for unpacking these kinds of experiences. It's going to be another kind of a checklist like with, um, with the third practice. And then I'm going to run this Sioux experience um, through that checklist and we can see, you know, how it would have helped to elicit a lot of the things that I eventually came to, uh, you know, after months of, of just thinking about it a lot and feeling bad about it a lot until I, until I uh, got to what it was all about. So, um, look forward to seeing you then. Thank you for giving your time and attention to this episode of The Way of the Higher Self. I hope you enjoyed it and found it useful, and I hope you'll come back for more. Personally, I'd love for us to stay connected. If you feel the same way, I hope you'll subscribe to the Way of the Higher Self YouTube channel and or the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit thewayofthehigherself.com where you'll find a growing library of materials to help you manifest your most evolved and positive qualities. While you're there, 
Sign up for email alerts and we'll keep you informed as more content is added to take your practices to a deeper level. Until next time, no matter what life may bring, I wish you maximum progress on your path.